Footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to Your Nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. We continue on this week with part five of The Wendigo, where Simpson meets up with Henry and Dr. Cathcart. The two hunters struggle with Simpson's story, trying to argue it away with logic and emotion. As we talked about last week, the mirror of reality has been shattered. And when it shatters, the mind, body, and emotions struggle to put it back together again. But we all know what happened with the story of Humpty Dumpty. I'm keeping this short and sweet again this week because I have this cough that still will just not go away. And it's, um, it's just super activated today. But don't worry. I got your hand. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Narrated by Mav Sky. Part 5. Chapter 6 The sudden entrance of his prosaic uncle into this world of wizardry and horror that had haunted Simpson without interruption now for two days and two nights had the immediate effect of giving to the unfair an entirely new aspect. The sound of that crisp, Hello, my boy, and what's up now? and the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand introduced another standard of judgment. A revulsion of feeling washed through him. He realized that he had let himself go rather badly. Simpson even felt vaguely ashamed of himself. The native hard-headedness of his race reclaimed him. And this doubtless explains why he found it so hard to tell that group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at, that a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must have food, and above all, sleep. Dr. Cathcart, observing the lad's condition more shrewdly than his patient knew, gave him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours, he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by the student of divinity, it appears that the account he gave to the astonished group omitted sundry vital and important details. He declares that, with his uncle's wholesome, matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, he simply had not the courage to mention them. Thus all the search party gathered, 
it would seem, was that DeFago had suffered in the night an acute and inexplicable attack of mania, had imagined himself called by someone or something, and had plunged into the bush, after it without food or rifle, where he must die a horrible and lingering death by cold and starvation, unless he could be found and rescued in time. In time, moreover, meant at once. In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness without divining that it was drawn out of him, as a matter of fact, by a very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how DeFago spoke vaguely of something he called a wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He also admitted the bewildering effect of that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent and acrid, like the odor of lions. And by the time they were within an easy hour of fifty island water, he had let slip the further fact, a foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition, as he felt afterwards, that he had heard the vanished guide call for help. He omitted the singular phrases used, for he was simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they measured a wholly incredible distance. It seemed a question nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty, what he should reveal and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent, with a net result that Dr. Cathcart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and invited delusion. While praising his conduct, he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was by judicious praise, yet more foolish than he was by minimalizing the value of the evidence. Like many another materialist, that is, he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge, because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence inadmissible. The spell of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind that is possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it worked upon my own when I was your age. The animal that hunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have, sometimes, a very peculiar quality of sound. 
The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously a defect of vision in your own eyes, produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them, but the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the most commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement. An excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and, let me add, wonderfully controlled by you under the circumstances. For the rest, I am bound to say you have acted with a splendid courage, for the terror of feeling oneself lost in the wilderness is nothing short of awful, and I had been in your place. I don't for one moment believe I could have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The only thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared the nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formula, made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way that I can describe it, Simpson concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel, was the reply, that under the circumstances, it did not seem to you even worse. The dry words Simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth. And so at last they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing, the remains of the fire and the piece of paper pinned to a stake beside it, untouched. The cache, poorly contrived by inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered about the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. Well, fellers, he ain't here, exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion. And that's as certain as the coal supply down below. But where he's got to by this time is about as uncertain as the trade in crowns in the other place. The presence of a divinity student was no barrier to his language at such a time, though for the reader's sake it may be severely edited. I propose, he added, that we start out at once and hunt for him like hell. The gloom of DeFago's probable fate oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity the moment they saw the familiar signs of recent occupancy, especially the tent, with the bed of balsam branches still smoothed and flattened by the pressure of his body, seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely as if his world were somehow at stake, went about explaining particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys. His uncle's method of explaining, explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory helped, too, to put ice upon his emotions. And that's the direction he ran off in, he said to his two companions, pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the gray dawn. Straight down there, he ran like a deer, in between the birch and the hemlock, 
Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances. And it was about two miles down there, in a straight line, continued Simpson, speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, that I followed the trail to the place where it stopped dead. And where you heard him calling and caught the stench and all the rest of that wicked entertainment, cried Hank, with a volubility that betrayed his keen distress. And where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions, added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, yet not so low that his nephew did not hear it. It was early in the afternoon, for they had traveled quickly, and there was still a good two hours of daylight left. Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search, but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blazed marks on the trees and, where possible, his footsteps. Meanwhile, the best thing he could do was to keep a good fire going and rest. But after something like three hours' search, the darkness already down, the two men returned to camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all signs, and though they had followed the blazed trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, they had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being, or, for that matter, an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what was best to do, though in reality, there was nothing more that they could do. They might stay and search for weeks without much chance of success. The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered round the fire for supper, a gloomy and despondent party. The facts indeed were sad enough, for Tefago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth and all its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time, even in the experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. Defago, moreover, was predisposed to something of the sort, for he was already had the touch of melancholia in his blood and his fiber was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the line. That was all. And he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased, and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself, and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked indeed, the end had probably come. On the suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day, from dawn to darkness, to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them. They discussed their plan in great detail. All that men could do, they would do. And, meanwhile, 
They talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating, for he admitted that a story ran over all this section of country to the effect that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of Fifty Island Water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason of Defago's disinclination to hunt there. Hank doubtless felt that he had, in a sense, helped his old pal to death by over-persuading him. When a guy goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed, it always puts that he's seen the Wendigo. And poor old Defago was superstitious down to his very heels. And then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time. He mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only admitted the strange language used. But Defago surely had already told you all these details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed. Whereupon, Simpson again repeated the facts. DeFago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story, and so far as he remembered, had never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course he was telling the truth, and Dr. Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into a blaze the moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least sound in the night about them. A fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of frozen snow from the branches overhead, where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident, lower also in tone. Fear, to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp, and though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. Hank was the most honest of the group, and he said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed, he didn't go farther than was necessary to get it. Chapter 7 a wall of silence wrapped them in, for the snow, though not thick, was sufficient to deaden any noise, and the frost held things pretty tight besides. No sound but their voices and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard. Only from time to time, something soft as the flutter of a pine moth's wings went past through the air. No one seemed anxious to go to bed. 
the hours slipped toward midnight. The legend is picturesque enough, observed the doctor, after one of the longer pauses, speaking to break it rather than because he had anything to say. For the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, which some natures hear to their own destruction. That's about it, Hank said presently. And there's no misunderstanding when you hear it. It calls you by the name, right, Ruff? Another pause followed. Then Dr. Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject with a rush that made the others jump. The allegory is significant, he remarked, looking about him into the darkness. For the voice, they say, resembles all the minor sounds of the bush. Wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victims hear that, he's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes. The feet, you see, for the lust of wandering, and the eyes for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes, and his feet burn. Dr. Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank to a hushed tone. The Wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet, owing to the friction, apparently caused by its tremendous velocity, till they drop off and new ones form exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement, but it was the pallor on Hank's face that fascinated him the most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes had he dared. It don't always keep to the ground, neither, came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set him all on fire. It'll take great thumping jumps sometimes and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it, and then just dropping him like a fish hawk will drop a pickerel to kill it before eating. And its food, of all its muck in the whole bush, is moss. And he laughed a short, unnatural laugh. It's a moss eater, is the Wendigo, he added, looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. Moss eater, he repeated, with a string of the most outlandish oaths he could invent. But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk. With these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, dreaded more than anything else was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in the enemy's country, against anything, in fact, rather than allow their innermost thoughts to assume control. He himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in this respect. He had reached the stage where he was immune. But these two, the scoffing analytical doctor and the honest dogged backswoodsman, each sat trembling in the depths of his being. Thus the hours passed, and thus, with lowered voices and a kind of taunt, inner resistance of spirit, 
This little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack and of hostage. The fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became insupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones, that no one seemed able to break, who first let loose all this pent-up emotion in very unexpected fashion, by springing suddenly to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night. He could not contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it carry even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted its rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. That's for DeFago, he said, looking down at the other two with a queer, defiant laugh. For it's my belief, the sandwich oaths may be omitted, that my old partner's not far from us at this very minute. There was a vehemence and recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart's showed a sudden weakness, a loosening of all his faculties, as it were. Then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he, too, though with deliberation born of habitual self-control, got upon his feet and faced the excited guide. For this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, and he meant to stop it in the bud. What might have happened in the next minute or two, one may speculate about, yet never definitely know. For in the instant of profound silence that followed Hank's roaring voice, and as though an answer to it, Something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead at terrific speed. Something of necessity very large, for it displaced much air. While down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal. Oh, oh, this fiery height. Oh, my feet of fire. My burning feet of fire. White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart uttered some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did so with an instinctive movement of blind terror towards the protection of the tent. Then, halting in the act as though frozen, Simpson, alone of the three, retained his presence of mind a little, his own horror was too deep to allow any immediate reaction. He had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said, That's exactly the cry I heard, the very words he used. Then, lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, Defago! Defago! Come back down here to us! Come down! And before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or another, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down and landing with a dreadful thud upon the frozen earth below. 
the crash and thunder of it was really terrific. That's him! Salt me, the good God! came from Hank in a whispering cry half-choked, his hand going automatically toward the hunting knife in his belt. And he's coming! He's coming! He added with an irrational laugh of horror as the sounds of heavy footsteps crunching over the snow became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness toward the circle of light. And while the steps with their stumbling motion moved nearer and nearer upon them, the three men stood round that fire, motionless, dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man subtly withered. Even his eyes did not move. Hank, suffering shockingly, seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet he did nothing. He too was hewn of stone. Like stricken children they seemed. The picture was hideous. And meanwhile, their owner still invisible, the footsteps came closer, crunching the frozen snow. It was endless, too prolonged to be quite real. This measured and pitiless approach, it was accursed. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.